With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey everybody, it's me, your bearded bruiser Jake, here once again to proceed the episode to let you know that the same issue from last week happened uh, during the same recording time, and so you're going to be hearing my laptop audio instead of the proper mic input that I had plugged into my home setup. Uh, Last week, I got a lot of people saying that they were very forgiving, and you know, they understood that mistakes happen, and I really appreciate it, but uh, let me just say this week... We're going full Omerta, all right? Nobody snitch on me. Don't tell Marcus, don't tell Holden, don't tell Ben or Henry, all right? As long as anybody is concerned, this never happened, all right? The episode went smoothly. I'm a genius, and if anybody says otherwise, I will come at you, body and soul. You will be sent to the goddamn shadow realm. Do you hear me, all right? All right, you with me? We got to get through this together, all right? You screw me, I screw you. This is how this works now, okay? Now enjoy the episode. It's your crazy psycho bandit bruiser holding McNeely. Ah! Hi, and it's me, Shooty Shumboom Bazango. Has a shiznit, my dude. Crumpets, quirky uh, side NPC, Jake. And me, Claptrap. Oh, yeah, I love Claptrap. He's real pathetic. <laughs> ah! <laughs> He's real. He just, just keeps talking. Here's 800 jokes a minute. Ah! About five of them actually go over. Ah! <laughs> we are here to talk to you guys today about Gearbox software and Borderlands. We called this Borderlands so that people would be like, oh, bra, sweat. I know what Borderlands is. I love that hit video game series by 2K Games. But we are also definitely talking about the history of Gearbox because it is wild, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so excited. So not only are you going to get a fun love fest and I mean, we're not going to like only love on it because I will talk about how the humor, I think, is a little too much at times. Uh, but other than that, mostly a love fest on the Borderlands series. And then also, as an added bonus, the just weird, wild, not wonderful story of <laughs> Randy Pitchford and Gearbox uh, because it is the highs and the lows and the lows and, and the, the lows and the gross. There's just there's all right, guys. Just to give you an example of what's going to happen in the future, uh, it will involve a medieval times restaurant and uh, cam girl porn um, and magic. 
So all of those things will come up later in the same story. Uh, hold in, hold in. You're, you know, you make that sound like the the that's like the grossest thing when really faking video footage of an E3 demo is the true <laughs> disgusting crime of this story. Because we will also be talking about alien co- colonial marines. We will be talking about um, Duke Nukem Duke somehow. Duke Nukem forever. And like that has gro- honestly, dude, this episode gets pretty gross so like just know that weird stuff's gonna come up weird topics are gonna happen and uh be prepared for that it is so strange this tale of gearbox so so bizarre and the fact that they produced the borderland series which is really and even the third one that just came out it did get a bit of criticism it took quite a while to to come out Jake, you've been playing it and you've been having a, a, a heck of a time. I've been loving it. Uh, obviously, we're still in the throes of the great stay indoors of 2020 right now. And I fi- it's the first looter shooter that I finally gave the time. And uh, something about the weird mix of tone uh, really just, it, it honestly works so much better than I've tried Destiny. I've tried Destiny 2. I've tried... A couple others that like kind of tried and meld that MMO kind of uh, Diablo just feedback loop of quests and loot and quests and loot Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the immediacy of just great feeling guns and, you know, uh, active combat that like, you know, Fallout tried and failed at and, uh, you know, Halo basically it, it hits a magic mark that they do deserve credit for threading that needle yeah absolutely do and half of the games industry right now is, is looty shooting it's so it's schluters is what schluters. my favorite uh, name for it which is what that sounds like what a sailor would call like the nastiest prostitute in all of singapore alex over at uh, giant beast cast a mm. video game podcast i like to listen to he came up with that one i believe and that is the grossest funniest way to refer to it i will say i was shocked Every time I do an episode like this, I get so blown away by the fact that someone that this was the first time someone was like, why don't we put RPGs like Diablo and first person shooters together? Like it's this brilliant novel concept because I have obviously spent years and years now playing games like these. And you're like, oh, right. It wasn't even that long ago that someone came up with this as if this was some novel, crazy, risky concept. You know what I mean? It seems so obvious now that, that of course, that works really well. Running around in, in these 3D environments, really good shooting, a massive variety of guns that you're constantly switching out so that you're constantly just going after that loot and, you know, going on missions and then throwing in online co-op. For me personally, I remember my roommates got Borderlands or one of my roommates got Borderlands and he and a friend they went to town. I played a little bit with them, and I regret not playing more with them. But he and his buddy, uh, my buddy Skulk, Skulk Steve, Skulk the Hulking Steve, he would go over and chill with my roommate Kep, and they would play tons of Borderlands together and had so much fun. I think they were doing couch co-op style. Then recently, in, in preparation for this episode, I was like, I could play some Borderlands right now because I'm feeling the same way, Jake. And so I gifted it to my buddy Kellen and said, hey, let's and, and, and to me, from reading everything, it seemed to me like Borderlands 2 is the high watermark of that series. Oh, yeah. 
So I, I was like, I'll just do two. I don't, I don't want to even mess with three. I'll just go to two because it's like 20 bucks, gift it to my buddy, you know, and just be like, hey, let's just like run around in here. And we got together and had so much fun and just immediately fell into it. And we're laughing and having a good time and ha- barely paying attention to what, what was actually happening plot wise or yeah. anything like that. And then, you know, I went back in and just played a little bit solo and had a good time doing that as well. But for the most part, was just like, oh, this is just going to be a great way to hang out with my friend for the next month or so, you know. And I know I was, you know, and I know people put people have just put in hundreds of hours into Borderlands 2 because of that. It is one of the ultimate hundreds of hour games. I can yeah. immediately playing. I immediately saw like, oh, this this is just this could be my life. Yeah. Like just leveling up, yeah. leveling up, DLC, the guns. Rolling different characters too and trying different things. I went with the Mechromancer, the psychotic little girl. Mechromancer. She rules. She can make just like a, her, her ult or whatever you want to call it is like a giant robot shows up and just starts kicking ass for you. It's really fun. Oh, so that means you got like the game of the year or whatever with all the DLC impact. In yeah, too, right? yeah, yeah. Like the, the big crazy one. Because that character had its own weird controversy in a company history rife with controversies mm, dude we're about controversy is the key word of this episode we've covered evil corporations before activision we did mm. uh we did an episode on blizzard not not necessarily to call these corporate well activision i would probably kind of call evil but um <laughs> you know we've done the big uh, we haven't done an ea one yet but we've mm. done episodes on notoriously disliked or n- seen as evil giant corporate overlords before mm-hmm. But this one is so different because this one feels so much more flawed and so much more, uh, like you said before, Randy Pitchford is like these other people who are revered even. No, this is it. This is let me, this is my grand theory is Randy Pitchford is just as manipulative, just as backbitey, just as egomaniacal, just as, uh, you know, wriggly and con artisty and two-faced as, let's be honest, Every great businessman of history is, you know, the truth reveals themselves to be, you know, Bobby Kotick uh, from Activision, even uh, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Thomas Edison, you know, all these grand business gurus that left just a trail of just disgruntled employees, just broken people in their wake and just broken promises. But he's not as big as any of these people. Although he clearly wishes he was, he's just the head of a fairly successful Texas-based video game developer. Uh-huh. So he gets this weird chip on his shoulder where he's both the underdog, who shouldn't be scrutinized this much, as well as the great like business shifty guy who's supposed to be making all these deals. And the end result is just a thoroughly unlikable guy. And a magician. You can't oh, trust a magician. I'm kidding. If you're a magician, you're listening to this. I love you. And we should actually do more episodes on magicians. Pin and Teller would be a good episode. No, no. If you're a reformed magician, I I understand. We all went through that phase where, like, <laughs> you know, I'm bad at parties. But if I memorize a series of hand movements and bring special props with me, that's almost a personality. Some use it to get laid. I mean, you But know. is it true love <laughs> that is one <laughs> with close-up magic that's what i want to know all right so why don't we jump into it right here right now because honestly we have a lot to cover today it's true we will start with of course randy pitchford i'm gonna talk about him at first as if he's not like a complete and utter 
piece of shit, for lack of a better phrase. Don't be fooled. We'll get there. Here He's we go. Pr- I mean, there's pretty. There's a lot of lawsuits in this company's history. We have to throw in a lot of allegedly's. I definitely read actual legal documents in preparation for this episode. <laughs> but before we get there, first off, we have to start with Randy Pitchford is the co-founder of Gearbox Software. His father worked in the U.S. intelligence system where he created high-tech equipment for other agents. And at just five years old, his dad brought home a computer he developed in 1975 and later gave Randy his own computer that that he built himself at the age of 11. He learned the basic programming language. We brought up basic before. I think it's a good... Is that still a good place to start programming? I don't know why I'm asking you as if you're some programming nut, but... It's it's, it's a start. It's a starting place for programmers, though. Is that still yes. true, probably? No, if you're learning to program, you probably don't start in basic, but okay. at the very least, for decades on end it was a viable way right to learn programs plus the the real core is that um in that era that 8-bit 16-bit era where every computer basically ran its own operating system more or less uh a program written in ba- every computer at least came with a basic program compiler so that it was the most universal way to distribute programs and games for someone just learning. So he's using that and he writes his first game at around the age of 12. It was a 16 room text adventure game. He also loved another text adventure game called Colossal Cave Adventure, so much so that he went into the code to learn from it and actually got a lot out of that uh, back at that young age. Also, very early on, Randy Pitchford grew a great fondness for magic, which he got from a great nephew of his named Richard Valentine Pitchford, or Cardini, the great Cardini. Just so we're clear, Pitchford was the uh, was the grand nephew, the Cardini, the great oh, right. Cardini. Duh. Yeah. So Cardini actually has a fascinating history, and it boils down to the fact that he was a grunt, terrified for his life in the trenches of World War One, who had nothing to do but like fidget with a deck of playing cards that he used wow. to play with his friends. And basically, everything we know about "quote unquote" card magic could be traced to him. He popularized wow. the art form. Uh, you know, the name Cardini was a play on Houdini. He, it's it's a legendary figure within the world of magic. You know, he's one of those primal sources of inspiration for entire genres of magic tricks. He passed away when Randy was just two, but the stories of his performances passed down to him lit a magical fire under Randy Pitchford's <laughs> asshole. He went to University of California, Los Angeles, right? UCLA stands for University of California, Los Angeles, correct? Mm-hmm. I just always say UCLA, where he met his first wife, his future wife, rather, who pushed him towards an entertainment career while doing video games on the side by performing as a professional magician in Hollywood, where he eventually became a member of the Magic Castle in LA, which uh, would also Famously be Famously really... mocked by <laughs> Arrested Development. Yes, yes, yes. And so, yeah, and if, actually he was making more money at first on Magic, uh, but that would quickly change. Pitchford got his start in video games proper at 3D Realms in Texas, which was known as Apogee at the time. We have talked about Apogee on our Doom episode. One of the great PC publishers of the era. Famous for introducing the shareware distri- distribution model that we talked about Again, in that episode, it allowed users to try out a game before playing the full thing. Essentially, you could unlock it after you paid for the full thing. And it was just hugely useful for the spread of games such as Doom and Quake and things like that. They also, 3D Realms, created the franchise 
Duke Nukem, as well as Shadow Warrior, but Duke Nukem's what's going to come into play later. This It basically pans out that Apogee distributed shareware and Wolfenstein 3D and Doom were their biggest hits by far. And as id got a little too big for their britches and were branching out to other publishers, Apogee realized that they needed their own in-house first-person shooter you know, development team. And 3D Realms kind of uh, advanced the genre through... Duke Nukem and Shadow Warrior, while id was off in, uh, you know, on their way to creating Quake. And the thing is, is they're both based in Texas. They actually shared a lot of that uh, core talent group. The two groups were oddly friendly for a while. Mm, mm-hmm. And in 1997, a group of devs and programmers left 3D Realms to found Rebel Boat Rocker. Uh, and Pitchford left. Rebel Boat Rocker, by the way, is a company. I, it sounds like a band or something. The head of Apogee was super, like, super pissed off that his talent would betray him by forming their own company. And uh, the whole time they were working for 3D Realms... They kind of, you know, were always butting heads with, I think the guy's, uh, Scott Miller, I want to say the guy's name was. And he famously referred to them as a bunch of rebels and who were rocking the boat. Mm. That company had a very interesting history where they had this very kind of communal way of working. They were, you know, everyone had an equal say in decisions. Everyone had an equal stake in the company. And their big idea was... Uh, the biggest genres at the time were first-person shooters that they had with Duke Nukem 3D, but the emergent polygonal gaming was kind of where things were at. This is the Tomb yeah. Raider era, where right. you know they were trying really hard to get these like at the time. Like, we've stressed this enough how cool those blocky as polygonal <laughs> graphics were. <laughs> yes, for sure. And the solution they kind of came around it was you have it in a first-person perspective. But there's all these, like, third... These NPCs are kind of doing shit around you and interacting with you. You have team members. You have uh, different uh, scientists and villains and all these other characters that are kind of doing stuff around you so you can see cool 3D people doing cool 3D things. But the control and perspective of a first-person shooter, uh, this project was called Prax War, mm. and they were working on it for a really long time. It was to be published by Electronic Arts... Uh, on which Pitchford served as lead level designer as well as public relations head, which is where he really starts being that person in front of the game, Mm -hmm. getting the word out there, all that sort of stuff, which will end up backfiring for him very badly in the future. Because he's the magician. He's the razzle-dazzle guy. He's the schmoozer. He's the rock star. Unfortunately, EA ends up canceling the game in 1999, and this led Pitchford and four other Rebel Boat rockers Brian Martell, Stephen Ball, Landon Montgomery, and Rob Hieronymus to found Gearbox Software. I believe Landon Montgomery was actually coming from Bethesda, but I may be wrong on that. Either way, they co-found. This is how we get to Gearbox Software. Supposedly, Half-Life blew them out of the water. All the things they were trying to do with Prax War, Half-Life just did so much better. And like a lot of what happens, uh, we talked about this during the It episode, the technology was advancing so quickly that if you were behind the times, if your game just looked a little old in the tooth, that's not the phrase, but I said it anyway. <laughs> I like it, though. <laughs> if you can be young in the tooth, you can be old in the tooth. It just wasn't even worth publishing. So having got, like literally seen who like fucked them over and having a few ins because 
Half-Life actually called upon a lot of those Texas area id software and 3D realms guys mm. to kind of uh, craft their gameplay. Yeah. Uh, Randy called his company Gearbox Software, refocused, restructured the company so that he was the undeniable like president and you know under the guise that you know hey we need leadership and it just so happens i'm probably the best leader is this your card you know brazzle dazzle rockstar <laughs> right man. right and so they're initially developing expansions to half-life well also oh, this is this is the thing this is the thing uh just uh randy pitchford bullshit number one okay this is the first one okay getting in there, a... we're getting there early for me i, I didn't have a Ready pitch for bullshit moment uh, for a little bit after this. In a 2009 uh, interview with Engadget, uh, RIP uh, tech blog, he said that he had won the name Gearbox Software in a riverboat poker game <laughs> in New Orleans against Gabe Newell, and he had uh. to settle for Valve Software, a claim that was completely denied and made up whole cloth that's so funny probably made just to piss off people at valve because we'll get into uh how gearbox and valve kind of split ways Ooh, i don't know as much about that so that's good I'm but excited. it's clearly like the winds had shifted and valve was the number one dog in fps development and that like 90s grungy industrial tone was what was in so he so valve is number one well we're gearbox so they are, yeah, they're porting and doing developing expansions for Half-Life for Valve. Supposedly, Randy pitches Gabe on the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead concept for their expansions. Opposing Force, mm. in which you play as one of the soldier guys who kind of come in in the halfway point of Half-Life to kind of shut down Black Mesa. Ah. And then uh, Opposing Force, you play as... Uh, I believe Barney, the security guard, mm -hmm. and the whole thing takes place during the events of Half-Life, and they take special care. So, like when you're playing opposing force, you're Barney, you're knocking on the door, and you see the famous like tram that Gordon Freeman takes into Black Mesa, uh, which is very fun and postmodern. It was like a clever thing to do at the time. Gabe says, "Oh, that sounds neat." However, they technically didn't own Half-Life at the time, so Randy had to just go across the street and pitch it at Sierra, which was the other big PC publisher at the time. Uh -huh. And uh, through, again, magic, razzle-dazzle man, magic, you know, uh, intense personality, mesmeric animal force, Randy Pitchford manages his small, untested company to get these highly covetous, highly prestigious expansion packs done. So Gearbox has a hand in every single Half-Life expansion or port since Half-Life 2, except for, obviously, Alex. I don't think they touched. But this is what gives them a lot of experience in not just first-person shooters, but also the console area of video games. And after that, they continued on in the port biz. They're not really doing their own IP yet. They're doing ports. The port PC work. port of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. And Halo, which got them in good with a lot of publishers, such as Activision and Microsoft Game Studios. They also created a new game for PC with James Bond 007 Nightfire. But their first big 
oh, their first big original IP was Brothers in Arms. It's a first-person tactical shooter with the first title in the series called Road to Hill 30, which came out in 05 for both PC and console, and they would focus on this series with two more sequels over the next two years. Jake, did you play Brother in Arms? I'd never touched a Brother in Arms. I never touched a Brother in Arms, but um, this was during the great era of the World War II shooter. This is when, you know, Call of Duty and Medal of Honor and all these other things are bumping around, and Brothers in Arms was kind of considered the thinking man's, the more prestigious of the franchises where um, they kind of really leaned into that band of brothers kind of mentality. All the, instead of following one guy, you were really jumping between different characters in a squad, all with their own kind of personalities, you know, down to the way that each different character would yell reload and have different loadouts. And there was a tactical kind of aspect to it where you could move your squad behind cover. It had a very, like, you kind of went between first person and then this XCOM style overlay. Gotcha. But it got great praise for its writing, uh, a lot of which was done by uh, Mikey Newman, Mm -hmm. who uh, we'll get into with his contributions for uh, Borderlands. Yep. And this was, yeah, this this was their first certified hit. Yeah, and this is what is the stepping stone to get to Borderlands, and that is where we're going to get to now. In 2007, they announced a couple of licensed games, Heat and Aliens, we'll get more on that later, along with a new game franchise they're working on called Borderlands. According to Pitchford, the idea for the game was inspired by his love of action RPGs like Diablo, as well as his first-person shooters. And in order to do this, they needed to combine two gameplay loops, RPGs tending tended to have longer gameplay loops to level up characters, whereas shooters had much shorter ones in terms of moving through and clearing out an area. In terms of the narrative, they needed to have the player focused on collecting loot because they wanted to be like Diablo, essentially. So they made them Vault Hunters, but also, uh, yeah, Fallout 3 was like the biggest game out there at that time, so I'm pretty sure they just took that from Fallout 3, and that's where they got to the name Pandora for the planet name, and that is a reference to Pandora's box. The world is also greatly influenced by tons of different sci-fi, but particularly the show Firefly, which makes a lot of sense, because Firefly is very light and loose and comedic throughout its with its tone, while also being a sci-fi, fun, cowboy type of thing. So there's a great CDC talk, uh, which is a great resource if you ever want to know the real story behind a lot of games, where they were kind of playing with a lot of different influences, stuff mm-hmm. like over-the-top cool anime designs from stuff like uh, Ghost in the Shell and Akira, uh, kind of grand space opera themes like Dunes, uh, cool, just like over-the-top extreme Warhammer kind of grizzled space marines, all kind of bouncing around trying to find this middle ground this kind of just retro sci-fi aesthetic and um the issue that they seem to come up with is that they worked on the halo port they got the shooting down for a pc shooter they 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 had it great switching between weapons navigating the terrain landing headshots Mm -hmm. fantastic the problem was was they had kind of committed to a pretty realistic art style. And there's tons of footage in early trailers. Yes, it's so weird. Early builds. This is such a weird thing. It's and it looks totally, like a Fallout game. Yeah, it's totally Fallout. It's muted colors. I mean, part of that is, and Borderlands really helped to change this, and I'm so happy because I really did not enjoy the look and tone of a lot of those games back in the day. 
and no, I, brown on brown. This yeah, was the brown, brown era. But also, we talked about this in our Skyrim episode, I believe. I mean, they also had to do that to a certain degree in order to just provide as big of a world as they were providing to people. It had to be pretty low-key in terms of dynamic colors. So I get it, but it is funny that they are, yeah, they're working on a modified Unreal Engine 3, and they're developing this game, but they just feel like after a while, after on a couple of years of development, by the way, at this point, mm. they review the game internally and just feel like it looks too much like Fallout 3. And they're already, by the way, hunting vaults. So it's like, come on, you got to try to step away from that game as much as possible. And that the game was, by the, ga- by the way, the game was 75% finished at that time. And so they scrambled to figure out how to make the game stand out visually. And this is when Chief Creative Officer Brian Martell and a small team created a secret prototype that gave the game an art style similar to cell shading. However, it was not quite that. It was in-game rendering and whatnot. It wasn't technically cell shading. But either way, they had to do it in secret because they didn't want to piss off the other teams by mm-hmm. doing some big crazy change that would make everybody frustrated and stuff, they needed to prove that it would be a better approach before showing it off. The, a ton of people did leave the company because yes, all of their work was essentially thrown out. Uh. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited two percent cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn two percent cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team. And 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. There's also the issue of uh, just kind of narrative incongruency, because... The game has Halo-style massive jumps. The game has crazy, weird vagina monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, it has uh, all these unique guns that are full of explosions and like crazy elemental effects, and even weird kind of off-the-wall concepts like healing bullets and all these things. Uh-huh. And in a realistic setting, it just felt wrong. It felt like you know, you're like the it couldn't square the circle of. Are we in Looney Tunes land or are we in grizzled apocalypse land? And that change in art style was essential for selling those mechanics as viable. So this is where I get to my first bullshit Randy Pitchford moment. This whole thing was largely inspired by a 2006 short film directed and written by Ben Hibben, which was commissioned by MTV Asia and shown at the MTV Music Awards. And it's about four heroes who join forces to battle corrupt gangs, dirty cops, and monsters set in the near future. And this is what the creator, Ben Hibben, had to say about his time. Did you watch this, by the way? I I just screenshots and stuff. I didn't actually watch it. I watched it. It's called Code Hunters. And... It's very much, it feels kind of like a 3D gorillas short film, uh-huh. but so much of the Borderlands aesthetic from the way the dusty landscape, even individual narrative shots like uh, the rusty welcome sign, the 
kind of rinky-dink bus that introduces our characters. There's so many elements that are clearly swiped from this short film that it's hard to deny. Uh, there's a lot of things it does differently. It has a more muted sepia kind of art style. Mm. Uh, there's, you know, it's not one-to-one, but there's clear lifting going on. So here's what Ben Hibben had to say, because he was actually a little slightly involved. I was contacted by Gearbox prior to the redesign of the game in 2008. They asked me if I would be interested to direct slash design some cutscenes for them. We exchanged a few emails, but the project didn't materialize in the end. I didn't think much of it at the time until I saw the final game in 2009. To be absolutely clear, I have never created or designed anything for Gearbox or Borderlands. Gearbox saw my work and decided to reproduce it, make it their own, without my help or my consent. The hardest part for me when this happened was understanding why they wouldn't ask me directly. We were already talking about doing some work together. It made no sense. So I think what essentially happened here was they started talking to the guy, realized they could do it without him, and just ghosted him. And it's Mm -hmm. so annoying to see. And also... So the result got largely positive reactions, except for from, of course, the original art director, whose name I don't have, actually. They left both the company and video games as a whole after seeing all of their work tossed out the window. That must have been incredibly frustrating. So this is like the first moment where I see a crack in the gearbox wall a little bit. Do you have Randy's response to this? Cause this is like really telling. I wish I did because I have a lot of other Randy Pitchford responses and yeah. And they're so flippant and they're so he'll never admit to anything. He'll like, even we're going to get to Alien Colonial Marines. Now mm. much of a complete piece of crap that game ended up being. And he will never admit that it was a bad game. He'll never admit that they 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 he misled at all by what that game ended up being based off of what he portrayed. I mean, just stuff like that. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. So in response to this uh, Code Hunters kind of plagiarism swipe, he said like, Oh, it's a shame that such, uh, you know, yellow journalist muckrakers want to, like, make this a big deal. Yeah. When really they should just be highlighting what a great short film this is and all the great influences it's <laughs> had on culture. Right. You know, you can't deny that Brad Bird's The Incredibles helped influence uh, art styles like Band of or like Team Fortress 2 and Medal of Honor Heroes. It's just a great visual landmark in the history of cg and more people deserve to watch it right so he's you know he's already shirking he's like oh no i didn't go literally ghost the guy responsible for a great part of our aesthetic and then just kind of leave him in the dust i you know this is part of the grand tradition of groundbreaking animators influencing culture so uh-huh. it's oh, so slimy yeah let's talk about the writing for the game it was also Not super self-serious, which pairs well with the look that they ended up getting to. It's very fourth wall breaking, and it can arguably be a bit much sometimes. That's what I would Uh, say. Well, the first one wasn't quite... The first one wasn't as bad. It had a lot of snark to it. It had Mm -hmm. a lot of sarcasm and, like, kind of chip-on-the-shoulder attitude. But that was almost like an extension of the fact that these were all Duke Nukem guys kind of writing it and extending it. Uh, Pitchford said, when we wrote Borderlands 1, we had all the lines accounted for, and I wrote a version where it really just attended to the information, and I've done this for a lot of games. One of the common jokes is something I did when I was working on the Half-Life stuff. 
a line in the script where the guy that's leading you along says, good job doing previous stuff, get ready to do next stuff. And that wasn't a joke, it was just a draft, a placeholder, informing what the real line needed to be as, okay, I need to acknowledge what we just accomplished, and I need to present the next step. But I need to do that in a way that's entertaining and in context of the situation of my character. But I was just trying to get through the information of what have you accomplished. So I wrote this script for Borderlands 1, which had a lot of that, and then Mikey went over everything, and he made it all crazy. And so, of course, the game is co-written by Pitchford and Mikey Newman and Allison Berryman. And a big part of the Borderlands, though, also is its variety of guns, for which they created an AI system to develop millions of guns. Pitchford said, We wrote artificial intelligence software and a gear builder system that actually built the guns for us. And we created all of these manufacturers and all of these materials, like metals and plastics and all kinds of different materials, and all of these components of weapons and all of these classes of weapons. And then manufacturers have their own styles. We fed this all into our software and our AI, and they... And let that build the guns for us. But at the end of the day, in the first one, it was a little more... You could kind of see the... the. It was a little more plain Jane. They get a lot more interesting with the weapon builds and stuff in Borderlands 2. But they did secure a really crucial thing to the Borderlands experience, which is they recaptured that thrill of playing a FPS like Halo and you see a new gun for the first time uh-huh. and you can't wait to test it out and see how it fires and see how it feels and kind of the, the the joy of just having a new toy to play with, a new way to interact with the world, uh, even if that main interaction is shooting people in the nuts. <laughs> it was j- it was a kind of a brilliant move. Like that's one of the core things is seeing that little shine of a purple or gold gun on the ground and immediately picking up and see what it does. Even if, you know, half the time you're just like, oh no, I'm never going to use this again. (laughs) Yeah, and there's plenty of that for sure. So this game is delayed until 2009, but when it came out, it got solid reviews and sold over 2 million copies by the end of that year, and by 2011 had sold 4.5 million worldwide. I remember Borderlands hitting, and I remember (laughs) seeing the advertisements for it and being like, this game looks kind of crazy, but also silly and goofy and cartoony, and really enjoying the change of pace, even though I didn't play it through fully or anything like that. I I, I did enjoy just the, the change in approach and and look and everything and of course and of course this leads immediately to a sequel they get incredibly high sales and so they start working on it this time the main four are a new batch the main four starter characters and uh the other four return throughout the game as npcs which is really great because there's one of the things that borderlands 2 captures really well is it kind of lets the characters that you kind of in embodied in the first one You get to see them, back to that old Pax War thing, you get to see these cool characters actually interact as themselves, and you get Mm. to recapture that love and that admiration. Everyone, you know, there's a little bit of a time skip, everyone gets gets coolness upgrades, and it, it really just, it creates a feedback loop where you remember playing the first game, you remember loving playing as that character, and then you get to see that character have more emotions and more plot happen to them. You get to see their story advance, without you kind of like watching a baby grow up or something um do you have stuff about anthony birch or any of that no lay it on me give it to me and i have a lot of stuff too so wash me wash me with the waters of 
your knowledge, Jake. I must know it. I must feel it. Ooh, I'm getting ready for it, Jake. And oh. in the meantime, they're still faffing around with Sega, trying to get that Sega, uh, that Aliens game made, right? We yes, we. I can't wait. the The funny thing about it is this episode is called Borderlands. And the stuff I really can't wait to get into are Duke Nukem Forever, <laughs> uh, Alien Colonial Marines, and that thumb drive they found at the medieval times. It's so funny. The, the success part, I'm like, yeah, 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 it was a really good game. Uh, but you listen to this. <laughs> so for Borderlands 2, they umped the humor quotient, which they wouldn't have been able to do without having that last minute art style change. So it really helped the series even more than they originally intended. It's too much, though. It's too much. Uh, I played I played several hours of Borderlands 2 and I'm just like about to mute Claptrap completely. If I hope there's a mod where I can just like kill like he was being beaten or something by something. And I was just like I just said into the mic, I was like, yeah, just kill him. Just let him die. And like my <laughs> buddy was laughing. It was very funny. So there's three things in the writing of Borderlands 2 that people get stuck on, and they're all worth talking about. Sure. They tapped a guy named Anthony Birch, who I used to read as he was a blogger for Destructoid. He was a very opinionated, very active, very online, prototypical games journalist guy. Uh, this was in the years before that became a weird like badge of dishonor and groans. <laughs> But one of the things he did was he made his own web series called Hey, Ash, What You Plan with his sister, Ashley Birch, when they were really young. So uh, these videos went viral with like basically a little girl reenacting the um, would you kindly scene from Bioshock. You know, they were just these really cute and and for the and very I thought they were extremely funny uh, video game sketches. And he was to, and so, and he became like a kind of a darling among developers because, you know, this was not just like crude gamer humor. This, even though the jokes were often very dirty, but there was kind of a, a wholesome kind of, I don't know, between the relationship with him and his sister, it was endearing. He was an endearing figure at the time. Mm. And this was the, his first major writing project on a video game. And he kind of, came into his own and one of the things he did is he brought in a lot of internet humor and that's the thing that a lot of people groan at uh you know there's yeah. an there's an arrow to the knee joke in one mm -hmm. of the in the game and that's what you know, that's what really dates the game is it, you need a lot of like early 2000s reddit knowledge to truly appreciate yeah i mean even just even just claptrap calling one of the monsters i just killed a noob was yeah. like come on what is so happening? that's groany but there's two things that he did really well. And uh, there's a talk from 2013 where he talks about there's a lot of humor in the game that wasn't there in the first game based on the mechanics. There's a famous thing where uh, Shooty McShootface or whatever. Again, uh -huh. internet joke. Right. But it's a, it's a mission that comes at the halfway point of the game where you're already used to doing all these belabored quests, all these really long meandering stories with twists and kind of reveals and changing objectives. And then you get this one mission that's just shoot this guy in the face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they've recorded this brilliant chunk of dialogue. In fact, Mary, uh, can we get a hit of uh, shooting McFace? In the face! Not so complex! Need it! Want it! Need it! Have to have it! 
Face shot! Boom! Sprays everywhere! Not the knee! Not the arm! Not the spine! Face! It has to happen! Face, 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 face! Tired of waiting! No more waiting! Need a face shot! Boom! Squish! Yay! Shoot me in the face! In the face! Do it! Shoot me in the face! Face, 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 face! Now! Bullets in the face! Want them! Need them! Gimme, gimme, gimme! At the sound of the bell, it will be... Face shooting o'clock! Bong! Knock, knock! Who's there? Shoot me in the face! End of joke! I'm gonna sing a song! Shoot me at the end of it! Da-da-da-da-da-da! Bong! I noticed you haven't shot me in the face! Curious as to why! Maybe you're weighing the moral pros and cons, but let me assure you that- OH MY GOD! SHOOT ME IN THE GODDAMN FACE! WHAT ARE YOU WAITING FOR?! THANK YOU! And all you do is shoot the guy in the face and the mission is complete. And that has stuck with people forever. There's another one where you're uh, working with Hammerlock, the uh, biologist, and he's trying to find a name for these monsters. And he's trying to figure out, like, what they're called. And he's, like, really... And so uh, they use the UI of the game to actively change the name of the monsters you're fighting as you're going through the dialogue on the radio broadcast. And you end up with, I think, what are they called? Like, uh, like butt nuts or something? Shit farts? They're called something very dumb. Uh, that's another game. And they have the, uh, the mission with Claptrap. I, this might be a spoiler, Holden. Uh, that uh, is where fine. you arrange a... <laughs> a shitty birthday party for Claptrap and nobody shows up and you are forced for the next three minutes to just kind of awkwardly stand around at a party, <laughs> uh, eating cold pizza and blowing That's into funny. a sad party horn. That's funny. So mechanically, the game does a lot of things to break the fourth wall, to really play with the gameplay loop. And those are the moments that people have, you know, for all the cringe and groaning that happens at Borderlands 2 humor, it's those moments that kind of get a pass because they were genuinely that good. And the third thing is um, uh, the idea was the main plot would be like an episode of Firefly. People are sarcastic, but there's kind of this somber, tragic quality to everything. Anthony Birch, which depending on how you feel about both these people, will make a lot of sense, idolized Joss Whedon and uh -huh. really imbued uh, that kind of the plot with the entire plot line with handsome Jack and his daughter and kind of the, the taunting, which he claims he wrote before he saw uh, portal and portal two. And after mm. he saw portal two, he like entered a depression because he thought handsome Jack couldn't compare to GLaDOS. <laughs> People really respond to that storyline. They find handsome Jack to be one of the most compelling villains in video game history. So there's this weird mix where the side missions are kind of this fun Aqua Teen hunger force. Anything goes crude humor joke fest. But the main story really does have heart. Mm. And so at a time when you know, AAA video game writing really was just kind of all serious, you know, we were still entering the Brown era, the Call of Duty era. Borderlands 2 shined like a beacon of uniqueness. Oh, for sure. Jeremy Cook, art director, said, in a lot of games, I would be like, well, this is World War II, so this would not happen, so you're going to have to redo this. In this game, it's like, that's pretty insane, man. Okay, let's do this. It's a very different attitude, because as long as it kind of points in the right general direction, it usually works. So with the fundamental in place, the sequel was really all about that polish. And a good example is with the weapon generator, 
For this uh, the game for this game they brought in Kevin Duke, a former pistol shooting competitor and gun nut who diversified the look and use of the guns. Duke said 87 million guns isn't really that interesting if they all look the same, if they all act the same. One of the things that is pretty unique with Gearbox as a company is that it's very open to individuals' ideas. If you have a good idea and you talk to the right people about it and it catches on, the sky's the limit, which makes a lot of sense considering how bad shit and how just everything in the pot Borderlands 2 feels. Paul Hellquest was brought in as a director. He was the lead designer actually on Bioshock. Hellquest said... Bioshock is sort of a dark subject matter. And so we're in this horror space and psychological stuff, and it's all deep. Borderlands is like, woohoo! It's sort of like crazy town. The things that we would have to, on whiteboards when we were working on Bioshock, were about like, how do we generate fear? And on our whiteboards with Borderlands, are like, what if we had a bandit who was a bearded woman with a turret in her beard? It's fun <laughs> in a very different way. There was a bit of controversy due to these sexist remarks, though, of designer John Hemingway in a Eurogamer interview where he said, The design team was looking at the concept art and thought, You know what? This actually, this is actually the cutest character we've ever had. I want to make, for the lack of a better term, the girlfriend skill tree. This is, I love Borderlands and I want to share it with someone, but they suck at first person shooters. Can we make a skill tree that actually allows them to understand the game and to play the game? That's what our attempt with the best friends forever skill tree is. I'm referring to the girlfriend skill tree because the girlfriend would be terrible at video games. Pitchford, of course, this is a new uh, beep, 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 cue Pitchfork bullshit or Pitchford bullshit moment. Pitchford responded to the pushback by tweeting out. There is no universe where Hemingway is a sexist. All the women at Gearbox would beat his and anyone else's ass. And also, I'm sure Hemingway is getting noogied right now, but not his fault. A personal anecdote has been twisted and dogpiled on by sensationalists. It's, uh, it's the media's fault. Borderlands 2 is released and gets very positive feedback from the game's press sales. They released two seasons of DLC with a special several mission campaigns. It is like endless, endless hours of content. I'm excited to play through it, actually, now that I have it. So uh, I listened to an interview with Mikey Newman, the writer of Borderlands 1, and uh, in this No Clip podcast episode, obviously the question came up, like, hey, what's the deal with Randy Pitchford? And Mikey had no bad words to say. There's a lot of people who do have very bad things to say, but uh, Randy kept him on board even when he had trouble working for the company, uh, when his illness would flare up. And what he claimed was that what you see as Randy Pitchford never backing down is him standing firm and defending when his team messes up, when his employees make mistakes, when, say, it's something like the girlfriend mode thing or when it's some graphical thing or anything else. It's he claims that is Pitchford standing tall and backing up his employees, uh, especially after having been thrown under the bus so many times when he was working for bigger uh, publishers. That's Mikey. That was Mikey Newman's interpretation. And it's worth, it's worth saying out. It's worth saying. He's also the first person in interviews. Pitchford is to say, this isn't my game. Tons of people put their work into this game. This isn't just me. This isn't just a Randy Pitchford joint. And he's mm -hmm. always very quick to say that as well, but he's still, We'll get it. You know what he's also quick to do? <laughs> Make a wear garish silk shirts for <laughs> any occasion. <laughs> All right, and on that note, let's get into Duke Nukem Forever, a crazy tale for Gearbox. 
Duke Nukem 3D is a big hit when it was released back in 1996 with its wisecracking, womanizing, tough guy protagonist and good for its time. I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum mm-hmm. and I'm all out of bubblegum. I, that was the worst. That was the worst version. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. And, and oh no, 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 actually, not bad. And and it did. It's have, weird. You gotta like say it through your nose, but still sound tough. Its shooting was good for its time. Uh, this is 1996. A sequel was announced by creator George Brusard back in 1997. And 3D Realms, the developer, kept pushing back and pushing back the release until they just said when it's done in 2001, essentially for. And everyone's like, when are we going to get another? Game from Duke. We need the Duke. And in 2009, uh, almost a decade later, 3D Realms was downsized and lost its development team altogether. This led to Take-Two Interactive, the publisher, to sue 3D Realms as they had not delivered on what they promised for over a decade. Supposedly, supposedly one of the grand things was having been kind of forged in the fires of the great FPS wars of the 90s. Uh, the team at 3D Realms kept dumping older versions of the game to try and keep up with the technology. So they would build a game engine. It would take too long to come out. Something new would come along Mm -hmm. and they'd be like, well, we can't release the new Duke. Duke Nukem is the game that looks good. Yeah. And so they would just keep recycling and re-upping and re-treading old material to try and stay current, even though they had a very small team and really couldn't keep up with that pace. And even though their core concept and character is the most dated (laughs) mid-90s thing ever, and the only way you could have made this work was if you had come up with a funny, self-reverential take on the character, but this does not end up happening, as you will find out. So during this time, uh, during the take two... Uh, essentially falling apart, downsizing everything. There's still a small group of ex-employees that were working on the game from their homes until 3D Realms hit up Gearbox to polish and port the game. Pitchford said, I bought Duke Nukem and Duke Nukem Forever, and they gave it to me because they trusted that we would do the right thing with it. Pitchford also hit up 2K Games and got them and 3D Realms to cease the lawsuits and get back into getting this finished product to actually be released in 2011. 15 years after development, which is insane. 2K is a subsidiary of Take-Two. It all kind of just, it all, and 3D Realms was all of, you know, Randy had ends with them. So he was at the right place. And with 2K, he had just delivered Brothers in Arms, Borderlands. Like he was making hits. You have to think 2K games really were trying to like break out of the uh, sports bubble with this new imprint. Uh-huh. And Borderlands really helped them become... Uh, their own kind of brand. So like they loved Randy at this time. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. 
So the game comes out and the game gets just horrendous reviews and for very good reason. I, I don't need to describe it. I will let this Ars Technica review describe just a little bit of the game to give you an idea of why this did not work in 2011, much less 1996. In the first few moments of Duke Nukem Forever, your character pees in a urinal, then earns an achievement for reaching into a toilet and extracting a piece of human excrement. Why does the game reward you for doing this? I have no idea. (laughs) It's not part of a joke or important to the story. The designers of the game apparently feel that you would miss out by not holding some poo in your virtual hand. And then this is the other, the one, the real killer. In another scene, a woman sobs and asks for her father. You see the women in the alien craft are being forcibly impregnated by the aliens. And during your journey, you hear a mixture of screams and sexual noises. After I accidentally blew up a few of these female victims in a firefight, Duke made a joke about abortion. And so it's just the most date. It's just the most tasteless, gross, for grossness's sake, not even suitable for like super immature, rebellious teenagers, just dumb, bad writing, really just completely hey, inappropriate. Hey, hey. You're really downplaying the repetitive, not fun gameplay yeah. and the in very like dated graphics. Yeah, it just sucks. And all they really had to do was come up with an interesting, updated take on that character, and you would have actually had a pretty fun game, at least in terms of story. But no, it's just tasteless and disgusting and not fun, smart, enjoyable on any level ways. But can it get worse? I mean, the Randy spit, of course, we got to give the Randy side of things. Uh And on Randy's side of things, he's like, it's amazing. Yeah. I can't, you know, this exceeded our expectations. We took one of the worst games unfinished and we made a game yeah that's pretty impressive if you ask me it's just so like he refuses to admit that that game had issues and he's going to continue to refuse it when it comes to aliens colonial marines we are talking about this game this is it was a disaster and we're going to get into why so creative director brian martell meets with director of the film alien ridley scott back in the mid-2000s at first about doing a game based on the world of blade runner but this conversation actually changed pretty quickly to the alien franchise which led to owner of the game rights sega to greenlight a pitch from them the game was to be a sequel to alien 3 and was to be canon this game is actually apparently i mean technically this game is canon Development began in 2007, but severely was sidetracked due to Borderlands 2 and Duke Nukem forever. So in 2011, there was a live presentation from Randy Pitchford at E3 about the game, which went over quite well. Pitchford said, I'm freaking out. We're big aliens nerds. It's a big, exciting thing that we're really committed to and proud to be a part of. The game is released in 2013 to horrendous reviews. (laughs) Uh, and this is mainly due to the game's many bugs and glitches, with xenomorphs constantly getting stuck in the geometry and just running around in circles or away from the player altogether. Also, just half-baked or monotonous sections of games, uh, soldiers that all look alike that you're dealing with for, like, half the game for no reason. So, uh, just do you have the uh, tether fact on you? Yeah, so apparently okay. this is largely due to a typo, a single typo of the word tether, that was actually a major cause of the bad xenomorph AI. Yes, that is, which is insane. 
Back when Sega announced the game with Gearbox, it was pre-Borderlands, and in order to focus on a sequel for that game, after it became a surprise hit, Gearbox outsources the work to an ex external developer called TimeGate to work on the single-player campaign. However, Gearbox handed that task to them on an unfinished engine. So the script apparently was being written and rewritten as coding was going into levels, which spells disaster when it comes to movies a lot of times. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine that happening in a game where you are fully constructing a 3D environment and completely, you know, uh, uh, just hours and hours of work on this stuff. And then they come in and be like, actually, we rewrote the scene. It's not going to be, a, you have to scrap this environment and start over again. It's, mm -hmm. It just sounds like a nightmare for the staff of Gearbox. While this is all going on, Sega and Gearbox are butting heads due to the repeated delays, and Sega is apparently requesting for changes to the story and little things like that. There's so much going on. So there's so this deal was years in the making. Sega had funneled money to Gearbox for Gearbox to make this game, but Gearbox kind of was shuffling this is allegedly this is all allegedly uh, all right, so yeah this is where we're going to start saying the word allegedly a lot so yeah allegedly allegedly uh was shuffling money behind the scenes to fund development on borderlands which was a triple a uh, borderlands two or three i forget at this point but you know just to, to fund their own internal projects which need that kind of big publisher money but they get a better cut of it because it's their property and so they're stringing sega along they're getting more and more money and their way out of this is, well, we want to focus on what we're going to focus on. We'll just outsource the game to smaller studios and supervise it, which is not what Sega agreed on. Sega wanted a, a Gearbox game, not uh, two smaller studios working semi-independently of each other. And the smaller studios, this is, this is all hearsay and anonymously, but like, you know, they were contracted to, hey, we need you to finish this game that we've been working on. Like, you know, cool, right? And they get the game and they're like, oh, this is, you had not done any work on this game and you gave us nine months to finish this thing. Yes. Uh, basically, the quote that I remember is, um, people say, uh, if you think, hey, this game probably, like, this game looks like it only took nine months to develop, the answer is because it did. This is from an anonymous source. Considering that Sega was pretty close to taking legal action against Gearbox, asking for an extension wasn't an option. And so Pecan... Crash landed through certification and shipping. Pecan was the code name for the game mm -hmm. title. Features that were planned were oversimplified or shoved in. A good example of this are challenges, which are in an incredibly illogical order. Issues that didn't cause 100% blockers were generally ignored, with the exception of absolute, absolutely horrible problems. This isn't because G G uh, Gearbox didn't care, mind you. At a certain point, they couldn't risk changing anything that might cause them to fail certification or break some other system. And so the project you see is what you get. Uh, so a class action law lawsuit. Oh, wait, did, we, did you get into the E3 demo? So yeah, this is where we're talking about. A class okay. action lawsuit was filed against Sega and Gearbox for false advertising, which led to Sega and Gearbox, especially Pitchford, slinging mud at each other, specifically with Gearbox blaming Sega on the deceptive marketing and Sega accusing Pitchford of going rogue on them, and, uh, on them, especially at the 2011 E3, with what he said to promote the game. Now, can you give us a rundown of essentially what people felt were they were deceived by? So you can still find this footage, but allegedly, uh, Sega was constantly... Allegedly! ...was constantly threatening to pull the plug. You know, the whole house of cards, quote-unquote, was collapsing around him, and so Pitchford 
slapped together this video demo, this, you know, slice of gameplay that was supposedly running on real hardware, uh, real console hardware. And it showcased all these like incredible narrative moments, all these in-game events with like real, like incredible lighting technology and incredible uh, coordinated like set pieces. There's a famous shot of a Marine like smashing against a glass window with like a realistic blood splatter. It made the game seem incredibly tense, graphically revolutionary, and maybe the most definitive aliens, Marines, but it was all fake. It was all like, he claimed, Randy's wiggle was that, uh, oh, it's standard practice for developers to show PC footage on a console game, right. but even the PC version was not acting like that. Looked like garbage, yeah. The AI was clearly pre-scripted and pre-animated to look real cool, and that's not how the aliens move in the game. And uh, Randy was showing this footage to journalists. He was, like, get, keeping this game alive, and that hype is what, like, begrudgingly let Sega loosen the leash a little so that the game could come out, and he could hopefully come out clean on the other side. And Jake, that's exactly what I was I was going to say just a second ago was just that you have to remember if you don't if you weren't around or don't have a big interesting games uh, at least at that time people were hyped about this game. We didn't have Alien Isolation at that point. Like we mm -hmm. didn't have a, a that great great Alien game at least not for a very long time. People were hyped about this game and were totally more just in insanely disappointed by the game. Pitchford had this to say when asked in Euro by Eurogamer about it. It's almost like they want to hear me say, yeah, it was rubbish. But it would be a lie for me to say it. I actually like, fuck, I like Duke Nukem forever. I thought it was brilliant. I did, which is hilarious because I feel like that is essentially him admitting that it is a bad game, uh, Duke Nukem Forever at least. And then when asked by Eurogamer if Pitchford would ever consider apologizing for the game, he responded, apologizing for what? Because I think earlier in the conversation, I said, I'm sorry if you didn't like it. I want you to like it. And I failed if you didn't. So again, it's like that cop out in an argument where you're like, I'm sorry I made you mad. As opposed to like, like actually, you know, showing any fault of your own. So yeah, Gearbox really starting to come off bad, especially Randy Pitchford. And that is when we get to Battleborn, which I almost forgot about Battleborn. I literally forgot about Battleborn until we had to research this thing. I won't spend too much time on it. It was announced in 2014. It was their crack at an Overwatch, essentially a first-person shooter. Well, there was MOBA. no Overwatch there at the no time. There was no Overwatch at the time, but still, it was like there. But that's what people know, so that's what I bring up as an example. MOBAs were big. Dota and League of Legends had broken through, and just like how Borderlands was a revolutionary spin on Diablo and a first-person shooter, uh -huh. it was only natural that Gearbox would be the guys who marry a MOBA and a first-person shooter. Right. They were already, like, kind of... Uh, Might was, like, kind of a lower on the... You know, kind but of a lower... everybody on was taking their crack at a first-person shooter mixed with a MOBA because everybody knew that was probably going to be the next big thing. And the downside was that Blizzard announced Overwatch, which was... I know I I literally got in trouble when we recorded this years ago, our Overwatch episode, and I said, yeah, it's basically like a first-person shooter MOBA. Whatever. Okay, I'm sorry. But they had the character kind of cartoony mm -hmm. uh, aesthetic. The humor. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Birch kind of helped with this one as well. And Blizzard was just more slick. The gameplay, this is a key thing that Battleborn fucked up. There's a lot slower fights. It plays very much more like a MOBA 
than uh, Overwatch did. A game of Overwatch could take 10 minutes really quickly. It's very simple. A game of Battleborn can take a half hour. You're, you know, fighting mobs. Your fights take longer. They're more protracted. And the visual style just littered itself with so many particle effects and, mm. like, weird visual noise that it looked terrible on Twitch. Oh, interesting. It genuinely just did not look appealing in video, while Overwatch was so glimmeringly shiny and easy to follow. And at the same time, Blizzard definitely made it a point to bury Battleborn. <laughs> <laughs> Blizzard totally catches Gearbox off guard by surprising, by uh, with a surprise announcement of their release date being incredibly close to Battleborns, well after they had announced theirs. This was most probably intentional so as to crush the competition with their much larger budget in comparison to 2K games. And I'm pretty sure, like the day Battleborn came out, the Bl- Blizzard released a be- like a surprise beta of Overwatch. To just just push the point home even further. This is in May of 2016. And Overwatch, of course, we all know now. We did an episode on it even. It just is, like, still just hugely popular. Incredible. The FPS MOBA. And so, and, and I will say, though, instead of moving the date back, which would have been the smart thing to do, Pitchford decided to stay the course. And then by June of 2017, the game went free to play, which is always a death knell for games these days. In order to revive its player base, it revives it very slightly for a very short amount of time. But then they put out their final update at the end of 2017 and announced in late 2019 that they would be shutting down the game's servers completely by January of 2021, which of course has not happened yet at the time of this recording, but it will. And it is very unfortunate for them. Less, that's, I mean, other than Pitchford should have pushed the release back. But other than that, I mean, that was more just Blizzard just destroying them. It highlights kind of the chip on Randy's shoulder that he really is a small fish in a a pond that is full of just whales. Right. And so this is when the shit completely hits the fan. This is my favorite part of this episode. This is my last big section. Here we go. In 2018... A lawsuit was filed by Gearbox against the company's former general counsel, a guy named Wade Callender, and it alleges that he, quote, exploited Gearbox's generosity and trust for his own personal gain. And this is the breakdown. He essentially borrowed money, allegedly, 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 allegedly. He borrowed money from Pitchford via Gearbox to purchase a home, got tuition money to go back to school for an MBA, and was supposedly to be repaid, apparently, which he never did, allegedly. That, uh, it also that he got his legal fees paid for in the past through the company, and that he took advantage of the company credit card, all allegedly. Mm-hmm. He sought monetary relief of over $1 million, or I'm sorry, Gearbox sought monetary relief of over $1 million. In response, Calendar filed a countersuit claiming that, quote, and this is in a legal document, by the way, Randy Pitchford is a manipulative and morally bankrupt CEO who shamefully exploited his oldest friend, a Texas attorney and military veteran named Wade Callender. Uh, and uh, he accuses Pitchford of funneling money out of Gearbox and into the pockets, uh, into his own pockets to the tune of around $12 million via his side entity, which is uh, uh, called Pitchford Entertainment Media and Magic. But also, this is where it gets completely insane, Jake. Also, 
he is accused of accidentally leaving a USB drive at a Medieval Times restaurant in Texas that contained sensitive Gearbox corporate info. But also, quote, Randy Pitchford's USB drive contained much more than the sensitive corporate documents of Gearbox and business partners like Take-Two Interactive, 2K Games, Sega, Microsoft, Sony, etc. Upon information and belief, Randy Pitchford's USB drive also contained Randy Pitchford's personal collection of, quote, underage pornography, allegedly. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, dude, this gets so good, all right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta hear this. But also... The document goes on by accusing Pitchford of using Gearbox money to throw parties with his wife at their home, referred to as peacock parties, in which adult men expose themselves to minors, quote, to the amusement of Randy Pitchford, allegedly. After this gets out, former Gearbox vice president and voice of the character Claptrap posted on Twitter simply, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that part. I did not know that part. And later he tweeted, liar, check, con man, check, perv, no idea. So he kind of walked it back a little bit. You think that's fucked up, but wait, there's more. Pitchford appears on a magic podcast in December of 2018. I believe it's called Puff Pod. Oh, like Magic the Gathering? Like no, a no, gaming no. podcast? No, Magi- a magician podcast. I believe it's called Puff Pod, but I can't. I, I didn't write it down. Uh, he goes on this podcast, December of 2018. So I'm saying allegedly, but he talks about it. He goes on, he talks about the infamous thumb drive. He talks about how he likes watch and, and, and the porn. So he talks about how he likes watching cam girls online, which leads to leads him to copy a video, quote, to his memory stick in order to, quote, work out the method of how this one particular girl managed to fake the act of female ejaculation. He said in this podcast, his own words, I realized this is not a sex worker. This is a fucking magician. So he's <sighs> saying that he copied a cam girl porn onto a thumb drive to study her magic trick of <laughs> of ejaculating without having an orgasm. And he admits it. He says he talked about it. And I tried to find, I think they scrubbed it from the podcast, but I mean, this is something I've known for a while. I cannot believe this. Medieval times, a thumb drive. The whole, here's another quote from Pitchford. This was before I learned I should probably have password-protected memory sticks. Some kid, an employee of Medieval Times, discovered this memory stick, took it home, and discovered secrets of my company and future games in development, and also discovered the pornography. It was barely legal porn. This guy's handle, this girl's handle was only 18. He went on to say it was exchanged for, quote, swag and video games. (laughs) So... He said, before I know it, I think the entire office looked at it and there was one piece of content on there and it never occurred to any of them that the reason why there was just that single porno was because of the magic trick, Jake. Not because of, I don't know, whatever the fuck they thought. (laughs) (sighs) It's so crazy. This is still less embarrassing than that awful magic show he did to announce the Borderlands board game at PAX 2019. What was that? I don't. It's I'm glad not. you brought that up because I forgot to write that down. What was that, dude? So this is part of like <laughs> – so again, again, all of the great people of history, perverts, liars, criminals, a lot of them. It's just that Randy Pitchford is just so – unempathetic <laughs> yeah uh so the suit was dismissed in a statement in 
October of 2019, stating that, quote, upon reviewing of all the evidence in the case, it was of the opinion of counsel that the evidence exonerated Randy Pickford from the allegations against him. All misunderstandings between the parties have been corrected and apologies were exchanged. Because the parties are mutually bound by confidentiality, no additional statements will be forthcoming. But just also to throw it out there, I mean, I have been listening to video games news podcasts and, and reading mm-hmm. stuff for, at this point, maybe maybe even coming on like a decade and I have ne- there is nothing that even comes close to holding a candle to what what this story is. Like no, I never you never hear stuff like this, you know. Right, because real rich people, real titans of industry, go to like Jeffrey Epstein's sex islands and they murder everyone right. who actually leaks stuff. Maybe <laughs> Minecraft and what's his name and, and Notch. Notch. Yeah, maybe that comes close but other than that it is just absurd by the way let's just reiterate that this is uh all alleged this is all hearsay this is all we are a comedy podcast parody you should not make any serious (laughs) legal conclusions or any sort of uh worldview completely uh based on this pure conjecture and uh let's just as the british call it just some bands right we're just doing some 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 chatty bands i mean some of it is actually legitimately confirmed and everything oh he did fuck over his employee he did cut the bonuses of a bunch of people while bringing in a million dollar salary for borderlands 3 let's i guess let's finish with that i mean borderlands 3 by the way I'd, I'm not sure what else to say about it other than it did it did get delayed and delayed a lot. Um, it got delayed. There was the Epic Game Store kerfuffle. Mm-hmm. What was the? Oh um, yeah. Well, oh, they moved. What did they move it to Epic Game Store? It, yeah, last yeah. Minute? But I, I mean, I bought it off Steam. So gotcha. Like, and you like it? Are you? And you said you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying it greatly. Um, I, you know, I enjoy having a game that I can like flex my graphics, my my PC setup a little bit. And it's my first Borderlands. It's my first time really engaging with a loot shooter. So I understand that the humor can be kind of cringy, but this was clearly written by a bunch of like aging uh, white dudes who think sarcasm is the height of comedy. And I'm an aging white dude who thinks <laughs> sarcasm is the height of comedy. So it is ju- I'm just a pig in shit. Like Fantastic. I would never like sit someone else down and be like, this is the height of comedy, but it is on my level. And I'm like a little bit ashamed to say it. So we'll close with this final Randy Pitchford is allegedly a complete piece of shit. Pitchford's most recent douchery came out in April of 2020 via Kotaku that employees were shafted on Borderlands 3. They got bonuses like they were supposed to, but not the tens of thousands and some in some cases hundreds of thousands that they were expected. They were told to expect. The success of the game. This game sold great. They should have gotten a ton of money, but they Randy... also have a, a royalty scheme at Gearbox where uh, they actually take lower than industry salary on the promise of a revenue share agreement. So Randy calls a meeting, tells them this and uh, said that the, the reason was the game was more expensive than expected and that their sales projections had been off base. And he also, of course, told the devs. That if they weren't happy with this, they were welcome to quit. So he's a fucking asshole, and uh, I feel bad for so many workers at Gearbox. And I still think you should play the Borderlands games because a lot of good people were involved in those games, and they do deserve their due. And people should play it because of that. But yeah, what a damn tale. And honestly, that that is... What was that? That was this month that that <laughs> story broke about Pitcher. Like, I don't understand why Gearbox is, you know, as a company, is not... 
removing Randy Pitchford completely. I have no idea why why he's still there. Uh, they're still a private company. It's still his company. Okay. And supposedly There's they no will go public. They will go public at some point, and maybe some adults will enter the room. <laughs> but, you know, we've covered, like, John Romero, and we've covered, like, these, these Wild West PC gaming dudes right. and the kind of kingdom that kind of collapsed around them. Yeah, yeah, And sure. Randy Pitchford is very much a product of that era and just – the world has not been kind to him. Right. Um, and he has not done himself any favors either. No, he has not. So there you have it. Our story about Gearbox and Borderlands. Ain't no rest for the wicked. Oh, Money yeah. don't grow on trees. But damn, Sing it, friend. Uh, all right. This was a good fun one, Jake. This, this, this was a lot of fun to learn about because I had been baffled at these news stories coming out over the past year or so already so i was super excited to tell the tale myself of the medieval times and everything uh, medieval times a uh, medieval times <laughs> if someone has an in with jim sterling tell him that we're doing this show and that uh he, they should, <laughs> we should uh do an interview or something because he's sure. been like to. He has been a dark crusader against Gearbox. Oh, my God. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us further, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do uh, episodes for just $5 a month. We do a bonus episode every single week. Check check it out. Check it, check it out. Also, you can find me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. I'm actually trying to get on there. I'm on there more days out of the week than not at least even at the very least to do a ring fit workout and embarrass myself incredibly and, fun to watch you do ring oh my fit god workouts. i am just sweating up a storm doing that stuff and uh as well as other things on monday tuesday friday night are the generally the nights to go everybody please please check out the last podcast on the left live in new orleans 2019 special it's finally here Go to www.lastpodcastlive.com to see their newest special, Back in the Habit, out of New Orleans. It's an amazing, amazing special, and it is just $6.66. Once again, that's www.lastpodcast.live.com. Jake? Uh, Follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung. I just want to say... I apologize profusely to all the very nice middle-aged women that started following us because of the Mary McDonald interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are right to be disappointed, but I hope you stick with us. Hell yeah, and that was great. Thank you again for doing that, Jake. Uh, all right. Take care, everybody. And always remember, never stop bruising. And always keep whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother, Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. 
That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.